What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of music, young adult books, and attention deficit disorder. Our first guest is Brittany May, a music professor at BYU, and we'll chat about musical play. Next, we'll talk with author Martha Brockenborough about young adult literature. Finally, we'll sit down with author Annette Lyon and discuss her experiences with attention deficit disorder. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with a reading of Anne of Green Gables and listen to a few writing tips from authors. But before all that, Let's take a glimpse into my world. There is something so wonderful about the ability to read. It's such a wonder that we're able to see marks on a page and decode them into language that makes meaning. As a librarian and teacher, one of the most amazing things I see is the world of reading as it opens up to children. Reading begins with the connection between oral sounds and written words or with children memorizing and repeating things they hear. From there, we move into the mechanics of decoding, where children really start interpreting the written word. This is a marvelous point in children's reading development, when they move into a realm that offers them more independence as a reader. However, even with some independence, does not come complete mastery, so children at this level may not be quite ready for highly complex books with lots of words. However, there is no need to fear. There are many books that are just right for this level of development. In the field of children's literature, we call these books easy readers, or beginning readers, or to broaden out, intermediate readers. Each of these designations indicate a group of books that contain more words than a typical picture book, but they still have pictures that support the text. A lot of these kinds of books also are divided into brief chapters to help children begin to learn the structures that they will experience when they move into novels. Even though you may not know what these books are called, I'm pretty sure you're already familiar with the classics like Dr. Seuss's Cat in the Hat or Arnold Lobel's Frog and Toad series, or even one of my childhood favorites, Danny and the Dinosaur by Sid Hoff. All of these are still classics today, but that does not mean we don't have some amazing modern easy readers as well. One of the big trends in the market today is publishers taking a beloved picture book character and translating them into an easy reader format. Among the beloved characters who have transitioned from picture books to easy readers are Fancy Nancy and Pete the Cat. Readers who grew up with these characters will be delighted by their new adventures as they continue to grow as readers. Along with these familiar friends, there are also some great characters that just appear in easy readers. Among my favorites are Elephant and Piggy, Cork and Fuzz, and Ballet Cat. So no matter if it's a classic or a favorite or even a brand new friend, here at Rachel's World, we believe there is no limit to the amazing books out there that can help readers build skills and confidence while they enjoy a great story at the same time. Rachel's World.
children play all the time. Anything from an empty cardboard box to a bouncy ball can become fascinating to a little child. It's through this play that children develop skills and learn about the world around them. Today, I have Brittany May in the studio, a professor here at BYU who specializes in music education. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I am excited to have you here. One of the things that you talk about a lot is how we incorporate play and music together. And I think your perspective on that is so insightful. So to start out, talk a little bit about play. Why is play important for kids, particularly from your perspective? Well, it's just interesting. We have you know years and years of research on how children learn and really how they learn is through experience and play and through their play and imagination and and hands-on experiences and and allowing they're motivated by their play and and so they move at their level and um, so many articles are coming across I've you know my Facebook news feed about how we've just really moved away from that culturally and have focused so much on reading and writing younger and younger we're just getting younger and younger every year and so you know play is really truly how children express themselves and explore and do all the things that they want to do and music is right there with it. I don't know a young child who doesn't come out like making music early in those years. You watch them play at the little kitchen, you know, and they're singing songs about chopping their vegetables or they're humming along or even in their their babble, like babies will, we call it musical babble when they kind of do that sing songy. I mean, they're, they're starting to explore the tones and play with their voice. And um, and so play is at the crux of all of that for for young kids in in their musical development and even just in their regular development. And it's it's sad that we've gotten away from that. I agree totally. I think it is very sad that we've moved away from this kind of active play. Yeah. And just letting kids imagine and be a part of an experience where they can play around with things and figure things out. So as a music teacher, how does that look for you? What how do you combine those two things? What what does that look like? So what's so important with young kids? In, in developing their um, you know their musical potential and we call it musical aptitude is that they have lots of exposure to musical experiences and it's the same thing with language when we're talking to kids right we the, the children pick up how to talk because they listen to us talk and they mimic it and and they start to learn words and they do that by sound before they start learning how to read and music is a language in the same way if we're constantly singing and listening and musicking with kids Kids, then they in turn start to almost develop a repertoire of, of, of tonal patterns and memory and rhythmic patterns and that will manifest later um, as they learn to you know music more formally um, just like reading you have to you have to have those sounds first you have to understand how to put those things together and I feel like play is so important for that singing you know row row, row your boat all of those standards those classics and having that repertoire of those types of songs and playing singing games like ring around the rosy and those things that we all grew up with, um, you know, is another way. And it's really interesting how many singing games that we play have, you know, musical concepts kind of embedded in them. Stopping, so true. Stopping yes. at the end of a song or listening for, you know, a key, a key word or phrase or maybe you're moving to the right 
on, you know, one part of the song and then it hits the chorus and then all of a sudden you're skipping. I mean, it's just funny how like you're you're embodying form and you're embodying the melody naturally in, in these playful activities. And it sets them up for kind of understanding that later. Yeah. So and for me, I love the combination of these kinds of activities that not only incorporate music, but they also incorporate other art forms, it seems very fundamentally like dance or drama. So it very much is, you know, a triple threat, right? Because we're we're getting a bunch of different art forms in one kind of context, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one thing that really bothers me is this idea that we've moved away, you know, from this holistic learning experience. I mean, we don't go about our day in like the math portion of the day. And then this is the music portion of the day. Like we do in schools. It drives me crazy. We don't learn in silos. Everything is integrated. And it's the same thing when we think about kids and how they learn. It's holistic. And so you're right. Like when we have these experiences and when we're playing, all of a sudden the drama and the dance and the music and and everything is integrated. And and depending on the song you're singing, you may even have some language development and some other things that, that peek in. And so you know, I hate that we've just become so focused on on teaching subjects, you know, and not really looking at the holistic experience. You know, what's the child getting physically and intellectually and emotionally and socially from this learning, you know? Which really is the truth of it. And I think Absolutely. so much of it is incorporated into that kind of holistic whole in a way that we often we often don't recognize. And that's one of the reasons I love play is yes. because it naturally puts that back in. Yes. And it also motivates, right? Like the kids are, the children are selecting what they want to do and, and where they're at and, and uh, exploring things that they're interested in. And it doesn't feel so forced. Um, there's nothing worse. I mean, how many people do we know quit piano because they hated, I sat down and then I had to learn how to read the notes. And, you know, first when really what they should have been doing is learning to play things by sound and enjoying, you know, taking a song that was familiar and figuring that out on the piano and then making that connection to notation later, much like we do with reading. And so, yeah, so play, approaching things from that playful, exploratory, you know, approach is just much more meaningful. So as you train teachers who are going to go into the schools and be music teachers or engage with music in their classrooms, what are some of the approaches and ways that you teach them to use music in their classroom in this way? Well, there's a variety of things that we do. I mean, the first thing I introduce right out the gate is the idea of the whole child and how do we, you know, whenever we're teaching, how are we meeting those physical, intellectual, emotional and social uh, development and getting away from, you know, just music as the subject. I mean, that's part of it. And we want them to learn things about music, but we do really want it to be a more holistic view. Um, and then the other thing is teaching them, you know, about some of the different pedagogies and best practices of music teachers. Um, and, and a lot of the pedagogies that are really popular in music education, like Kodai, Orf Schulwerk, Dow Crows, are all really, um, premised, you know, founded on this idea of sound before symbol and experiential learning first, and then moving into uh, traditional music literacy. That could be a whole topic for another day about (laughs) what literacy is. We should save that for another day. But um, but to yeah, to reading and notating music and being able to perform it. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, that that wonderful combination of where we should start, I think, for a lot of people, they miss that piece when it comes to music, mm-hmm. right? I don't think they have that grounding and foundation. Yeah. Or, or they start piano when they're eight, and that's the first kind of real experience they've had with music. Absolutely. So, so why start earlier? Why do some of this foundational stuff at the very beginning? Well, it's interesting. We actually know from research that musical aptitude, the potential of a, of a child to be musical and really develop into a very competent musician, is formed by the age of nine. 
And so it's those early years that are so fundamental for getting as many musical experiences and engagements as possible so that as they hit that age of nine, they have this foundation, uh, you know, again, of tonal patterns, rhythm, you know, rhythmic patterns, all of this uh, form about music. It's in their ears. They've heard and experienced and played with so much music that they learn music and they immediately can make those important connections to, to what they're learning about and what they've heard and experienced. And so it's really heartbreaking to see how many schools, I mean, I was in a local school district not many years ago. I volunteered in kindergarten classrooms teaching kindergarten music because they chose to start music study in first grade because, you know, kindergarten, well, they sing songs and stuff in kindergarten, which is important. And I'm not poo-pooing that, but I'm like, it really, and I'm glad first graders were getting it, but I'm like, man, those early years, like all the music, all the time, like that's when it needs to be happening. And that's not to say it shouldn't happen later, but if we really provide those youngest students, preschool, pre-K, kindergarten, with those rich musical experiences, I mean, think of the musicians we'd have, you know, think of the, the potential. Their music aptitude would be off the charts. And so I'd love to see that change. And music educators have really been advocating for that change for a long time. And I think we need to advocate for We'd advocate harder. <laughs> harder. Yeah. I know. It seems like yeah. no matter what you do, you know, it's uh, I, people value it and they see the value in music, but it, there's still just this push towards the other subjects that, you know, well, but we only have so many hours in a day. And of course, financially, you know, hiring other teachers to come in. And, and truly, I mean, the other piece I'm advocating is not only to get music into those grades and to train classroom teachers to do it, but those kids need specialists. They need music teachers who really understand musical development. You know, singing songs is the first wonderful step. Every parent should be singing with their kids constantly. Um, but there's there's a lot there, you know, that music educators in particular really understand about best practices in developing. Well, which just brings it back to that foundation of if we incorporate play and yeah. music together, we can start building that solid foundation. So as you know, yeah. we kind of wind up this conversation today. Yes. Give, give us one tip, because I think you're right. Singing and doing this kind of language things with with children, even at the youngest ages, is so essential. Yes. But I think most parents may not do it because they don't feel musical themselves, right? Or they don't feel like, oh, I can't sing or I can't do this. So what would you say to a parent like that? So the first thing is, is everybody's musical. Yes! We know that too. We're all born with the musical capabilities, but people, it goes back to aptitude. People who are, you know, more musical and more comfortable making music, it's because they had more experiences with it and more exposure to it. And so they were developed in it, but everybody's absolutely musical. Um, And honestly, does it matter? You know, it's your kid. It's It's your child. It's true. Sing with them. And I think one of the best pieces of advice I I ever heard, it was from my mentor, Susan Kenny, who I adore. Um, She was teaching she was doing a a class when I was in grad school with some classroom teachers and that was one of the concerns is I don't like to sing and and they tend to sing very low because we want children to sing kind of up in a higher voice that's that's more their voice rather than in our talking range and she just said just take the song and just put it up a little bit higher than where you talk and just sing it I mean there's really just do it it, you know and if you do it the more and more you do it then it'll get it'll get easier but yeah just get over that fear you know any musical model is better than no musical model and so very 
perfect and and listen listen (laughs) to a variety of music if you're really uncomfortable singing maybe find ways that you know the children can absolutely experience singing ask how much singing they're doing in the the classrooms and putting them in preschools but then yeah then listen to lots of music lots of different genres of music in the class and at home and that'll also build their musical ears well and i love that we have so much music available today i mean like when we were growing up we didn't have that much music available too too. like physically buy the cd right or the tape yeah but now it's like you just download it that that works too right you know singing along to a a a song that you've downloaded or something even if you don't feel confident having that kind of mentor music in the background can be helpful absolutely there's so many options there's just no excuse no excuse no excuse everyone has the ability to sing and enjoy music with their children absolutely well if it makes anyone feel better i mean i grew up in a family that really appreciates music but my parents are not necessarily particularly musical my dad played a little bit of guitar and he'd sing with me but what made the difference for me is music was always playing and we were dancing to it and you know listen to all of my dad's albums he's just such a music connoisseur and that exposure I think is really what instilled my desire to want to practice music and study music and so it wasn't necessarily the singing piece but it was just that music was always there you know and, and that I was constantly exposed so so now we're all convinced there you go go make music go make music part of your home yes Yay. play it all the time yes. sing in the car I love it it's there there's lots of options absolutely thank you so much Brittany you're welcome Brittany May is a music education professor here at BYU Now, we have story time with a reading of Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. Anne stood up and drew a long breath. Oh, isn't it wonderful, she said, waving her hand comprehensively at the good world outside. It's a big tree, said Marilla, and it blooms great, but the fruit doesn't amount to much, never small and wormy. Oh, I don't mean just the tree. Of course, it's lovely. Yes, it's radiantly lovely. It blooms as if it's meant to be. But I meant everything. The garden and the orchard and the brook and the woods, the whole big dear world. Don't you feel as if you've just loved the world on a morning like this? And I can hear the brook laughing all the way up here. Have you ever noticed what cheerful things brooks are? They're always laughing. Even in the wintertime, I've heard them under the ice. I'm so glad that there's a brook near Green Gables. Perhaps you think it doesn't make any difference to me when you're not going to keep me, but it does. I shall always like to remember that there's a brook at Green Gables, even if I never see it again. If there wasn't a brook, I'd be haunted by the uncomfortable feelings that there ought to be one. I'm not in the depths of despair this morning. I can never be in the morning. Isn't that a splendid thing, that there are mornings? But I feel very sad. I've been just imagining that it was really me that you wanted after all, and that I was to stay here forever and ever. It was a great comfort while it lasted. But the worst of imagining things is that the time comes when you have to stop, and that hurts. You'd better get dressed and come downstairs and never you mind your imaginings, said Marilla as soon as she could get a word in edgewise. Breakfast is waiting. Wash your face and comb your hair. Leave the window up and turn your bedclothes back over the foot of the bed. Be as smart as you can. 
Anne could evidently be smart to some purpose, for she was downstairs in ten minutes' time with her clothes neatly on, her hair brushed and braided, her face washed, and a comfortable conscience pervading her soul that she had fulfilled all of Marilla's requirements. As a matter of fact, however, she had forgotten to turn back the bedclothes. "'I am pretty hungry this morning,' she announced as she slipped into the chair Marilla placed for her. The world doesn't seem such a howling wilderness as it did last night. I'm so glad that it's a sunshiny morning, but I like rainy mornings real well, too. All sorts of mornings are interesting, don't you think? You don't know what's going to happen through the day, and there's so much scope for the imagination. But I'm glad it's not rainy today, because it's easier to be cheerful and bear up affliction on a sunshiny day. I feel that I have a good deal to bear up under. It's all very well to read about sorrows and imagine yourself living through them heroically. But it's not so nice when you really have to come to have them, isn't it? For pity's sakes, hold your tongue, said Marilla. You talk entirely too much for a little girl. Thereupon Anne held her tongue so obediently and thoroughly that her continued silence made Marilla rather nervous, as if in the presence of something not exactly natural. Matthew also held his tongue, but this was natural, so the meal was a very silent one. genres and types of books within the world of literature. Books can span from fantasy to nonfiction or long novels to picture books. Often an author will stay in one area, for example, only writing picture books or staying within the realm of science fiction. But sometimes authors explore multiple types of books. Today I have on the phone Martha Brockenborough, an author of biographies, young adult novels, and even picture books. Welcome, Martha. Thanks so much for having me. Martha, why is it that you write so many different things? What is it about you as a writer that attracts you to such a wide range of formats and genres? You know, I think it reflects my habits as a reader. I have been a reader hardcore since I was a little kid. And really, there was no kind of book that I wasn't interested in giving a try. You know, the world is a fascinating place And whether we're seeing an invented world of fiction or a look at some aspect of the real world through nonfiction, I just love it. And I've been incredibly fortunate in my career that I've gotten to do both and for all ages. I'm grateful for that, too. And I really appreciate writers like yourself who who reach out to a wide range of readers and a wide range of interests. You have written some young adult novels, which um, I find very interesting and fascinating. Particularly with your young adult novels, you uh, you address pretty tricky issues. You address life and death and and fate and love and and some really <laughs> intense things. Particularly that are extra intense, I think, when you're when you're a young adult and when you're facing those types of things. Why is it particularly with your young adult novels that you think you're attracted to those types of themes? I remember when I when I was that age, which is, you know, kind of that 12 to 18 age, maybe even a little older. Those were the things that I thought about a lot. You know, when I was 15, my grandfather died and I was curious about, you know, what does this mean that we're mortal? And um, so, you know, young adult novels 
are not necessarily just for young readers, but they are about that experience of kind of becoming fully human in the world of falling in love, of getting a broken heart, of going out into the world for the first time all by yourself. And it's definitely fascinating. And and my two YA novels, Divine Intervention and The Game of Love and Death, are really different. Divine Intervention's a buddy comedy, and The Game of Love and Death is a historical romance, but both of them do deal with um, the incredible preciousness of life and the fact that we all die, um, because those are things that I think about and realities that inform my everyday choices. I wanna have a good life and do good things for the world, and uh, it's reflected for sure in my fiction. Such a beautiful message, particularly for teens who are embracing life and wanting to make a difference. One of the things I love about both of those books, but particularly about Divine Intervention, is the fact that there's some pretty heavy and deep themes, as we've noted, but you delightfully use humor in such a wonderful way that that adds to the levity of the story and doesn't bring the themes down to be so burdensome and heavy that we're like, oh, these themes, you know, those types of things. I I love that kind of juxtaposition that you bring the humor and the seriousness both to the page. Is that something you do consciously? Um, (laughs) I do, although my teenage daughters tell me that I'm not at all funny. So (laughs) most most teenagers think that no adults are funny. So we're good. (laughs) I I think that's true. Um, No, I really, I wanted to write something funny because there are lots and lots of funny books for younger kids. There are fewer funny books for older kids. And I, you know, I know that when I was in middle school, when I was in high school, I needed space, space to laugh and not take the world so seriously. I, you know, every other, I felt like I was always under so much pressure that anything that could make me laugh. And, you know, I went through my Monty Python phases and my Saturday Night Live phases. And I really appreciated all of that humor. And so it was a pleasure to, to try to deliver some of that back to the world. Well, I think you did a nice job doing that because I I found that delightful humor. And, and in many ways for me as a reader, I find that that humor adds some seriousness as well to these kinds of serious topics, which you wouldn't you wouldn't think, but it does add some interesting depth to to these rather serious topics. I also love your characters. Um, you approach your characters in in such a marvelous way and have such a rich range of characters. Where where do you come up with these character ideas? <laughs> well, with divine intervention, it's funny. There's t- it's about two teens, Heidi and Jerome. Jerome is the world's worst guardian angel, and he accidentally kills Heidi. And they have 24 hours to sneak her soul into heaven before she disappears forever. And uh, Jerome actually is a bit of an artifact from my childhood. When I was growing up, I had a friend, Mary Beth, who was one of, I think, eight kids. And she had a brother, Jerome, who was always in trouble, but I never saw him. It was just always people talking about Jerome and what has he done now? And so I thought, oh my goodness, wouldn't that be the perfect, I mean, what if what if he was just a guardian angel and they were talking about how he kept on screwing up? And so part of that, you know, I, I really loved this character, Jerome, who was so deeply flawed, but he was really trying. And, uh, you know, 
Don't you love people who are just trying, even though things are hard for them? Particularly particularly when they're an angel. I think that just adds that extra (laughs) layer of of wonderfulness to it, right? Because, you know, he's not just an individual. He's an angel. (laughs) He's he's still trying. He's almost an angel. He's in Heaven's Soul Rehab Program um, because he was not quite bad enough for hell, but not quite good enough for heaven. So I love that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so I, that really I just love that delightful that delightful setup. And one of the things I love in in talking to teens and recommending this book is is that wonderful kind of setup. They they always think, oh, this is interesting. This is something I can connect to, which I think just adds a, a great depth to to the field of YA. You also have written picture books, so tell us a little bit about that experience. What is it like to write a picture book? Well, picture books, I mean, that's how most kids come to reading. And I sure loved picture books when I was um, a child, and I still do. I mean, it's this incredible marriage of really spare writing to really incredible art. I just had one come out. It's called Cheerful Chick, um, and it came out on January 1st, and it's about a, a baby chick who hatches and just so wants to be a cheerleader, and nobody's having it. Nobody is interested in joining her squad. And uh, so this is a story about how even if no one is on on your side, you just got to do what you got to do and things will work out. Um, I also wrote a book called Love Santa. And this one was inspired by a letter my daughter wrote to me when she was nine years old asking if I was Santa Claus. And so my reply, it's funny, I put it in a blog post and it really went viral. I mean, it just millions and millions of shares on Facebook. And it took me a while to figure out how to turn that into something that would be a satisfying picture book. But I think I did. And I'm really pleased with um, that one. Brian Wan illustrated Cheerful Chick, by the way, and Lee White uh, illustrated Love Santa. And they are both they are both wonderful and delightful. And I would definitely suggest people going out and checking them out. Now, now I'm going to ask you the really hard question. You write YA novels, you write picture books, you write biographies. Which is your favorite? Pick your favorite child here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's so hard. It's always <laughs> the books that I'm I'm struggling with most. Um, because that's the one that I have the most hope for and the most heartache. Um, so I'm, I'm working on a novel right now that is, um, it's a retelling of seven fairy tales that I've set all in the same world and I've turned them on their heads. Ooh, and it's really I'm a challenging. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I, I'm excited. It's a really excited, challenging yeah. book to write. Um, and I hope that I can get it done in a satisfying way. And so right now that's my favorite, but, um, okay. I also have a picture book coming out next year and it's called this old dog. And so if anyone has ever loved an old dog, um, this is a book that is going to just put a puppy-sized lump in your throat. Oh, that sounds beautiful, too. Well, I'm excited for all of these great things that are coming out out from your pen or computer or wherever they come out of in, in, in your writing process. And as we close up our conversation today, tell us a little bit about how you interact with your readers and your fans. What kind of response do you get to your books? Well, um, I get just really lovely responses. Um, You know, I'm not one of those authors who's recognized in the airport. Um, But when people do connect to my books, I think it's because they recognize a kindred spirit. 
um, behind those words. And it's somebody who loves people, who loves the world, um, who has hope for things, but is also able to look into the darkest spots of, of our hearts and minds. And uh, it's just really incredibly satisfying to connect with people that way and to have people say, I read your book and I'll never forget it. Well, I have read your books and I will never forget them. So I am in that in that category of reader. <laughs> and I've just been honored today to speak with you. And I hope that my listening audience will be inspired to read your books and never forget them as well. So I hope they'll run out to their local library or bookstore and, and check out all of the great work that has that has come from your pen. Thank you so much for your time today, Martha. This has been very wonderful. Thanks for having me and have a great day. Martha Brockenborough is the author of Divine Intervention and Love Santa. Now we have the opportunity to listen to a few tips from authors, Matt Kirby, Andy Ellis, and Tracy Hecht. The first thing I tell kids is to make sure they are reading a lot and reading widely. Because what I tend to see is that kids can kind of find something that they like and they keep reading that uh, including just sort of rereading the same series over and over again they don't really venture outside of it but I think if you want to be a writer you really need to understand how story works and the best way to understand how story works is to read a lot of different kinds of stories so I tell kids to read books that they don't even think they're going to be interested in read books in all genres Read mysteries, read westerns, read, read science fiction fantasy, read romance, read, read all the things that you think you wouldn't even be interested in because you're going to learn from them. And then the second thing I tell them is to just get in the habit of writing every day. Like even if it's just a little bit, just get in the habit of writing because the truth is it's a skill like playing a musical instrument or playing a sport. Writing is not something that any of us come to and we're just good at. We all have to put in the time and the practice. So just like you have to practice the piano, you have to put in time every day practicing writing. I think the main thing is write what you think is really fun to write. Because if you really like it, then somebody else will really like it and you'll you'll make great stories. So just pick something you really love to write about or a a character or or a theme and go with that because that's that makes it the best i would suggest just write and have so much fun writing i think the core thing about writing that you don't ever want to lose is the sense of fun and play i think you should enjoy it you should be creating new things doing crazy things and just have fun and play every time you write if it starts to get heavy Take some time to free write and just write something crazy, write something fun, but never lose that sense of play and enjoy in your writing. And you can do that by going off script. And I think that's so important for writers to not always be so tightly controlling their work, but to let yourself kind of go and open yourself up to new possibilities. And then I think the writing really takes off. Perfect. Thank you. Life in the classroom can be a difficult adjustment for any child, but especially when the needs of the child aren't met or understood. 
Many children suffer from attention deficit disorders, but with so many different types, it can be difficult to recognize, understand, or even diagnose them. I'm in the studio with Annette Lyon, an author who has some experience with attention deficit disorder. Welcome, Annette. Thank you. Annette, I would like to talk with you today about a very important topic, and that's attention deficit disorders. I know that you have personal experience this with this in many ways, and I'm excited for you to share that with our listening audience. So to start out, maybe just generally tell us what have, have been some of your challenges that you've faced with attention deficit disorders? So yeah, that's an interesting thing, because I, I have, I have the what they call ADHD with the hyphen I, which just means the inattentive subtype. So I don't bounce off the walls and run and you know, go crazy. Um, ADHD in general run, does run in my family. Um, I have a nephew who's been on medication for most of his life, and, and he's doing well and successful adult and all that now. But if I mention that to people, immediately they say, oh, this particular sibling of yours, because she does have a hyperactive type. <laughs> you know, she is more just, she's so energetic and just out there. And um, so for years, I had that image in my head that, that well, then I don't have it because I, I don't do that. Um, and it wasn't until uh, my son hit seventh grade Along with, you know, so junior high and puberty and what we didn't realize was ADHDI. And then his life just started falling apart. He just couldn't function. And I was trying to figure out what is wrong. Um, there's a point where I thought his, his, he was losing his hearing because I would talk to him and he wouldn't. And then he would have no recollection of the conversation or whatever. Um, and it came down to, no, he actually has ADHDI. And... Um, his teachers didn't believe me at first because, oh, well, no, no, no. He sits in class very well and he pays attention. And, you know, he's he's so well behaved because you picture a boy with ADHD and his, you know, this kid is climbing the classroom walls and whatever. Um, and no, he, I'm sure he was nodding and I'm sure he was looking at the teacher. But that didn't mean his brain was in five different places and he couldn't focus. Um, so that's been the biggest challenge. Um, it turns out that most boys who have ADHD do have a hyperactive subtype. And so it was doubly hard to get him diagnosed in that sense because he didn't, didn't fit that little box. Um, but then as I, the more I researched, I started learning about ADHD in general. I started learning about the inattentive subtype and how um, being able to hyperfocus is actually classic for all kinds of ADHD people, meaning so not we have the problem with, you know, having a hard time zoning in on one area or our attention is easily distracted by other things. But then if our brains do latch onto something, we can get so sucked into it with our attention that you know, the house could be burning down and you might not notice it till the smoke's in your way and you can't see your computer screen or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and in hindsight, I can look back to high school and think I did well and I had very good grades because my class periods were 50 minutes long. And that's about as long as I could focus. And if I did happen to have brain fry and just totally space out after half an hour, chances are I was okay because the teacher would be re-explaining the math concept or whatever, and I already got it the first time. Um, but when you start having, you know, nowadays kids often have, you know, the A-B schedules and they have 80 or 90 minutes in a class period. That's when they start struggling because your brain can't focus for that long if you if you have ADHD. And I noticed that with uh, my oldest daughter as well. She managed she figured out her own coping mechanisms through junior high with making you know all these little itemized lists and setting timers and all of these different things. She didn't realize that she too had ADHD until she hit high school 
and AP classes and these kinds of things where you don't have, oh, well, here's this for the first half hour and now do your homework. You're having 80, 90 minutes of solid instruction. And she, her grades for the first time in her life were dropping to like C's and, and she would come home just in tears. And finally, um, cause she would joke, oh, I think I have ADHD too. Ha ha ha. But then one day she came to me and said, mom, really, I think I do. And I think I need help. And sure enough, just a, just a little bit of medication has made all the difference for her. So the more I learned for my children's sake, the more I went, oh, my goodness, this is me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it, it, I have noticed I hyperfocus. I do. I get scattered. I go to the grocery store and I'm walking out the door. My husband would say, oh, would you make sure don't forget the milk? And I would totally forget the milk and I would just berate myself thinking I'm just stupid or whatever. But, you know, I, now I've realized it it's literally is my ADHD where the family now knows I have a no- magnetic notepad on the door. And if that's my grocery list and, hey, mom, we're out of eggs, we'll write it on the list because if, it if it's not on the list, it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's the family phrase because I have to have these ways to remember. I won't my brain won't pay attention and to lock it into you know, the memory banks otherwise. And so um, I went to my doctor and said, you know, considering that this is very genetic and now, you know, my children are showing and I have siblings and, you know, all these things, what do you think? And so we went down that road and um, I started medication. And I I remember very distinctly the first day I went, I took medication. Um, That morning, like an hour afterward, after I took my medicine, I um, went to the kitchen to do something. And I don't remember what I was, I went to do, but I went to do something in the kitchen and did it. And the fact that I, that nothing distracted me to the point, because you know, for me, I'd go to the kitchen and do five things and go back to my office and go, wait, I, I, the one thing I meant to do didn't get done. Go back to the kitchen, you know, all these things. I went to the kitchen and I did whatever I meant to do. And I promptly sat at the kitchen table and burst into tears because I thought, is this how easy it is for other people? This is what normal is like. Um, and it was a relief to go and a little bit of grief, too, thinking I could have had this earlier. I could have been not so frustrated and so beating myself up because, you know what, I'm not lazy and I'm not stupid and I'm not inconsiderate if I forget these little things. My brain has issues. <laughs> Literally, I mean, they've, they found dozens of genes that are connected to it and, and all of these other different elements um, that it's not my fault. And here's ways to cope. Here are supplements that help. Here are tricks to use. Here are, you know, all of these things. And so um, my youngest, we're pretty darn sure she's got it as well. And she's very aware of it. But we haven't done medication yet because we know, especially with girls, if she ends up getting married and wanting to have kids, you can't be on medication while you're pregnant and nursing and that kind of thing. So we're very aware of let's push off medication as long as we can and just work on those coping skills. And then when you need medication, we know we, that's something we can turn to. Um, but so she has some supplements she takes every morning and she has fidget toys and she's got lists and she's got all of these different things. And so far she's doing really great and she's in ninth grade. Um, but she refers to her supplements as her meds, which yeah. cracks me up. <laughs> but she Love can it. tell when she hasn't taken them. Yeah. So, yeah. I really appreciate you being so honest and candid with this because part of the thing is I think when we look at these kind of disorders, we pigeonhole them and we say, oh, it looks like this. But the reality is they don't all look like this. And I think we need to be more aware of that, particularly as we're working with our kids or even ourselves and being aware of how these different things work and being aware of coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So what are some of those coping mechanisms besides lists that you actually use that you think are really useful for you? Yeah, well, it's... Lists are, I think, one of the best things. And I I have a notebook that has 
you know, daily lists and I have a monthly calendar and I've got, you know, if you look at the up the bullet journal idea, I do a lot of that. Um, I have tons of reminders on my phone. I've started using this app. Um, it's the routine, the routinist app and it's like a $10 app, which is a little pricier than I usually go for, but, um, it's helped me set up morning and evening routines so that I don't forget to do stuff and I get to bed on time and I get up on time and I get out the door when I need to. And so it's it's silly, but it's like, oh, you have 30 seconds left to finish brushing your teeth, you know, like, oh, done, you know, and or whatever. So just to kind of keep me on track because it's so easy for my mind to go astray and to go, oh, you know, a shiny object over here. What's that? It needs to be done. Um so fidget toys are big. I would say not a fidget spinner, though, because a, fid- a, a fidget toy that is very um, effective is one that you can use with one hand and that you don't have to look at. And fidget spinners, you know, you, 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 they're only cool if you're looking at them. And so they're distracting everyone else around you. And I know this one um, ADHD girl who it drives her crazy when there's fidget spinners in her classroom because she's constantly distracted by the, yeah. the stinking spinners. Um, so, but if you have a, a, a fidget toy of some kind, whether it's a stress ball or a fidget cube, and if you're going to get a fidget cube, get the real ones from ANSI Labs. Um, they are they're amazing. I love those. I got them for all my kids and I have one too. Um, but, you know, because there's little things you can do with your hands that are not very obvious, that don't make lots of noise, um, because there's something about movement that really helps your brain focus on something else. As long as you can be moving, then that satisfies the distracted part of your brain and then you can focus on something else. Um, one thing that I did, and I need, once we get a new treadmill someday, I can do this again, um, but it's broken right now, um, is I bought a, like a $12 pre-made shelf from Home Depot and then I used my husband's wood clamps to clamp it to the arms of the treadmill and then I put my computer on it and I walked it like 1.5 miles an hour. It's like so slow. Um, but the fact that I was moving, I was able to, t- to edit and write and for hours of being focused just because I was walking very, very slowly, my body was moving and therefore I could focus. So that's was absolutely huge. My kids started using the tread desk setup um, for homework and for reading and it was helpful for all of us. Um, another big thing is using white noise. If I need to focus on something, I can pop in my earbuds play some white noise on an app or some websites do it as well. Um, and that blocks out other distractions and really helps me focus on what I need to get done. But L-tyrosine is a big, a big supplement and vitamin D. Both of those are very helpful. I really appreciate those tips because I think there's some really small strategic things we mm-hmm. can do to help these. So tell us a little bit um, as we close up our conversation today about if you were giving advice to a parent who had a child that they were pretty sure has ADHD, what would be one of the first things that you would suggest to them to kind of address those needs? I would tell them for sure to make sure to support their child no matter what. Make sure the child knows that they're not stupid, they're not lazy. I have a cousin who, who was told those things for many years and she has a, a couple of learning disabilities on top of her ADHD. And now she has a master's degree, which is thanks to her parents supporting her and believing in her when her, her teachers to her face would call her this, you're just lazy and you just don't work hard. Um, so the kid, your child just needs to know you're in their corner no matter what, that you're not going to be shocked or disappointed or yell at them or whatever. And that, you know, if this, if this coping thing didn't work or if this doctor didn't work out, we will keep looking. We will keep trying until we find the best match for you so you can succeed to the, you're the best of your personal potential. I think that's the biggest thing is just make sure the kid just is already struggling and floundering on their own. They don't need that from one more place. Just know that we're going to keep fighting. I, I'm your parent and I will fight for you. 
Wow, that's wonderful. Perfect way to end because this is so, so important. We do need to fight for these kids and yeah. we need to get them the help that they need and help them to, to cope. And then they will go far and do amazing yeah, and incredible definitely. things. So thank you for sharing your candid personal experience with us and opening up the world of HEHD to us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Annette Lyon is a mother and an award-winning author now. Join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. I'm in the studio with Andrew and Emily Garrett, student librarians at BYU. We have been working on a project about historical fiction picture books. And one of the interesting things that we found is a lot of different connections about race and gender. And how these themes play out in in children's books, which have been really important topics, you know, kind of for the history of children's literature for a really long time. But it's been interesting, some of the stuff that we found. So talk a little bit about that, Andrew. What what are some of the things that we found in this project? Yeah, so we tried to pull every historical fiction picture book that we could find at an academic library. And we ended up coming up with only 162. So it's a pretty small genre. And of those books, more than 40% of them are discussing race in America. So for some reason, we as a society have established that we feel that it's really important for us to be teaching children about slavery and segregation and these uh, different ethnic cultural traditions. And I, I think that was one of the interesting things for me is that they are, there's a, a majority of them that they're, they're there, but they really are about segregation and slavery, yeah. which isn't the scope of racial experience in the United States, right? It, in some ways, that's a really kind of relatively narrow conception of race in the United States, although it is deeply impactful to our culture and our history, yes. and we definitely need to understand it. But it, it's, it, that gets tricky, right, to not, not see the scope, but also see the depth. <laughs> a real, really odd little balance for me. I think a good explanation for that is that we've established as a society the ways in which we want to teach our children about segregation and slavery, which is really good that we've faced our historical narrative and that we've come up with a way that we want to teach children about it. But because of that, um, it's easier for these authors to follow this well-trodden path when you find these really rare books that are actually able to talk about the Holocaust or Japanese internment camps or Native American boarding schools and all of these other more diverse um, ethnic traditions that also have existed in America for a long time. Yeah, and I, I really like that we need to kind of expand that, right? Because there's stuff there, there's stuff that exists, but it's not as deep and broad as we we would really like it to be. There's yes. lots of other traditions. One of the other things, particularly with some of the um, segregation books that we found, there are better ways to talk about it and not better ways to talk about it, especially when you're talking about we have kind of these established traditions. You're very right that we know how to do this. But even then, the story and how the story is presented makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. um, there were two books that we found about kind of a Rosa Parks books yeah. that were very interesting, very contrast. So talk a little bit about yeah, them. Yeah, these are really good to compare because they're both from the perspective of a child and they're both trying to just take place in the bus where Rosa Parks gets arrested. While the first one, um, instead of Rosa Parks, they replace Rosa Parks with a young girl and she just sits in the front of the bus because she wants to see what's special about it. And then when she gets asked to know, she gets embarrassed, so she refuses, so she's arrested. And we actually found that that kind of trivialized the story because instead of this brave act of protest done by an adult, it was a child. It was as if a child could have done it by mistake. While the second book 
is the back of the bus, and that's about a boy who's riding with his mom in the back, and he explains how, how scared he was for Rosa Parks and how empowering he felt about it after she was taken off the bus because she didn't have to hide anymore. She could be herself, and it used these metaphors involving a marble, and it's something that children were even more able to relate to while um, refraining from kind of trivializing this important historical moment and making it approachable for children. Yeah, and that balance is so tricky because, you know, throughout this study we found – lots of different books that some are really great, some are really horrible, and and how they do that. Because particularly with race and racial relations, you have to not trivialize it. You have to make it be really important. And that's sad to me when when they do. Yeah. Yeah. There's books that certainly went too far and made it too emotionally charged or too mature of a topic that I'd rather be discussing with teenagers than (laughs) six-year-olds. Which is tricky. Yeah, because, you know, that's the tricky thing with particularly picture books, right, Emily, that, you know, there's a perceived age group for them, but maybe the content isn't really that way. I mean, we talked about this in our children's literature class, right? It's like, is a picture book really for children? uh, Yes, (laughs) yes. And especially with this new contemporary fiction genre that's booming right now. And I kind of thought about that a little bit as you're talking about how they're there's a need for more diversity within our historical fiction books. And I think that's a, it's a very new, I, and I, I don't want to say that there hasn't always been a diverse, a need for div- diversity in books, but recently I feel like, I mean, look at the Disney princess movement. Like yeah. They, just more emphasis on yeah, the need for diversity. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that that's something that we can definitely focus on more with adding that to the children's picture books. Now, I mean, it's not too late to go back and write more about these different races yeah. Um, well, and that that to me was kind of the shocking thing is that we, you know, the, these books, diverse books do exist, but they aren't diverse in their diversity, right? They, they they limit themselves to certain events, certain ideas, certain structures, instead of really embracing the entire diverse experience that would represent a lot of the historical context that that we're structuring in. And I think actually in nonfiction, we've seen us move better in that way, where we're starting to get more biographies of people that we don't really know very that's well, true, or, or yeah, or things that events and things that weren't necessarily kind of on the radar, you know, we're, get, we're getting these kinds of biographies that show a wide range of people. But the same isn't being held true of the historical fiction yes. end of things. If anything, I say that the historical fiction picture books are just trying to follow the trend in the rest of the literature more than trailblazing in this. That as you see these more diverse biographies, those then funnel into the picture books and you see, oh, this fictional boy is hanging out with Booker T. Washington or some other historical picture, yeah. picture that we've established these biographies about. Yeah, <laughs> which, becomes, which becomes tricky because that's for me, you know, the diversity of the diverse experience is what I want to see. And particularly when it comes to the diversity of the diverse experience represented, because one of the interesting things we were looking at also is how gender is expressed and how family relationships are expressed. And that's very much different depending on a cultural background. And that doesn't always work mm-hmm. either. So that's getting into those tiny set of subsets of books that are brand new and actually do show like non-African American ethnic minorities. And they're often, uh, they often don't struggle with content the way these other books do. And that's because they're written with a different purpose. And they're often just showing 
how these children interact with their families. And at first you might think that's just familiar values of these cultures, but really it's kind of this almost survival technique that's coming out of these cultures. This is that through their families is the best way for them to transmit their culture and, and survive being an ethnic minority while being isolated or having these cultural bar- barriers in the wider America. Yeah. And, you know, all of this for me kind of is really interesting because it's a crossover between our kind of sociological understanding of our history, our culture, how we interact as people, and then how literature does its work, right? Because what literature does and how literature does it well is important. And good writing is very important. I mean, yeah, Emily, (laughs) you and I are like totally, totally on this good writing type of thing. But then we also have to kind of take these sociological things and put them in, in together. And you need the good themes and yeah, yeah. you need good and themes. That's what I'm harping on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. I mean, yes. and that so themes are really critical to all of this, right? It just it's and that becomes tricky, and which I, is hard. Yeah, I could argue that yeah. you could take any any lesson or theme about history and make it good for any audience with good writing. Like, yes, no, you you can totally state that factually. <laughs> you don't even contend that. Yeah. yeah. I feel like these authors are feeling like they have to find this like really interesting story in their family lineology, but really it's about having the space that we can use these books for multicultural education and that children can really at these young ages see, oh, this child's different than me, but really we're the same and they're having similar life experiences to me and I can relate to them as the other and as the same. And I think that contextually is really kind of the foundation here, right? We need mm-hmm. we need these books to structurally help us see other people in their lives, but also see how we connect with them at the same time. I'd like to thank Andrew and Emily for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with Brittany May about the importance of musical play. Then we chatted with author Martha Brockenborough about young adult books. And in our last interview, we discussed attention deficit disorder with Annette Lyon. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.